Well, good morning. If you would, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and as Brian mentioned, if you would open them to the uh, second to the last chapter of your Bible, and that's Revelation chapter 21. The subject today is Heaven Is. Heaven Is. That's the title, as God makes all things new. Did you have a good Easter? Well, it was awesome um, uh, from our standpoint here at church, being able to observe uh, those of you who came to worship the Lord on a day in which we commemorate His resurrection. And uh, of course, we do that every week as we gather together on the Lord's Day. And why is it called the Lord's Day? Because it's the first day of the week and it's the day that the church gathered together to celebrate the fact that Jesus not only died, but that death was a sacrifice offered to God. God received that as a pleasant and right sacrifice and then approved of it by raising His Son from the dead. And then... When Jesus was alive after his death, he taught his disciples, taught his disciples, and then ascended up to the right hand of the Father, where he is right now. And what is he doing right now? What's Jesus doing right now? Well, there are at least two things Jesus is doing. One, one, he's praying for us. I don't know how you came into this room today. You came stepping high or you came feeling low. I want you to know this, you're being prayed for this morning. Now, sometimes somebody will say, hey, I'm praying for you. And uh, what they mean is, I'm thinking about you. And there's sometimes somebody said, man, I'm really praying for you. And you know, they're hitting their knees. But when Jesus left here, he left to go to the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. In fact, we read this in Hebrews chapter 7. Therefore, he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I don't know if it puts a smile on your face or not to think about this, but right now the Lord Jesus Christ is praying or interceding for you. That's not because your salvation is not complete in Christ. When Jesus on the cross cried, it is finished, he did mean every bit of work for redemption was completed, and the work that he did while he was here on the earth and his death on the cross confirmed again by the resurrection. But Paul put it this way, who who condemns us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. So when you say, Scott, Jesus is praying for us, where do you get that? from from the words of Christ, from the words of the writer of Hebrews, and from the Apostle Paul. He's also doing this. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. He is also, what else? Preparing a place for you. That's pretty good. And uh, man, if if that didn't put a smile on your face, you need to start drinking coffee. Because that ought to wake you up. That right now, Jesus is not at all passive in heaven. At the right hand of the Father, I should say. He is praying for you. He's preparing a place for you. He told his disciples, in my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, right now he's preparing a place for you to be with him forever. And that place, that place is heaven. And I want to talk about heaven this morning. What must heaven be like if Jesus is preparing it for us? It's a city prepared, I think been prepared for throughout all of the ages but he's preparing you as well as preparing me for that city as well as preparing the city. We're being prepared. And we're not ready for it yet, but we will be when we're made just like Christ because that city is un, 
It's really unfathomable. It really is unfathomable. And I'll show you what that city must be like. I was really struck by a commentary that I read by Danny Aiken on this subject when he was talking about what life was like in the 1500s. In the 1500s. He said, and this is pretty awesome, like the 1500s were uh, the dark ages. We, we know that things were much different in the 1500s. Um, these were not the good old days. These were not the good old days. 1500s, uh, people had June weddings for this reason. He said in, in the 1500s, most people had a yearly bath. And typically that was May. May was the time for baths. So by June, you were still smelling okay. Um, but you weren't smelling the greatest, so that's why you had a bouquet of flowers to overcome whatever might be there as far as B.O. So the popularity of a June wedding comes and stems from that. Pretty amazing. Um, and baths were like this. Big barrel, little water, and the oldest in the family got to bathe first, and then down the line, the men went, and then the women, and then the children by age, and then finally the babies. By the time the babies got in the water, the water was so filthy, dirty, you didn't want to lose the baby in there. Thence came the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bath water, right? 1500s. 1500s, uh, your house might have had a thatched roof, no rafters, and so the, the thatch was really, really thick. Because it was really thick, it housed all types of other critters like rats and snakes and dogs and cats. And so whenever it rained, that thatch would get very slippery, and then animals would slide off the thatch into the house. Thence came the saying, it's raining, cats and dogs. Floors were dirt, so thence came the saying, dirt poor. Canopy beds were not a luxury. They were actually to keep stuff from falling out of the roof on you while you were asleep. It was a pretty interesting day when um, people died. They were buried right away. But years later, it was determined that a lot of the people that were actually buried weren't actually dead. Uh, they discovered this because they exhumed some graves. and They found 25%, 25% of the graves they, they exhumed had coffins with scratch marks on the inside. Ah. So they decided to start having wakes. As a result, a wake was, you think they're dead, but you're not sure, so we'll stay up all night with them and see if they wake up. And since then, they weren't quite sure then, even if they were completely dead, uh, what they decided to do is drill holes into the ground, into the coffin, and put a string from the coffin onto the hand of the dead person, or maybe not the dead person. And on the other end of the string, on top of the ground, was a bell. And then someone would have the graveyard shift to see if the bell rang, and if the bell rang, they could save the person, and the person was saved by the bell. My goodness. Like, I always thought that was a school saying, like, oh, saved by the bell. So things have changed a lot, and the commentary was just basically saying, imagine the changes that someone from the 1500s might experience leaving that world and then into the next. But I thought, I thought it a little bit differently. I thought not only that, here's what I thought. I thought, how hard would it be to describe heaven to someone who lived in the 1500s? I mean, could you imagine describing the United States of America to someone who lived in that kind of society? I just read this week an uh, article. I, I love these kind of articles about houses that are for sale. A house sold in Paradise Valley for $25 million dollars. And it's 16,500 square feet, pools and garages. You can imagine all that it has. 
Imagine trying to explain that to someone in the 1500s that lives in a, 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 a hut with a dirt floor, with a thatched roof, with dogs and cats and mice and snakes and everything else in it. What, what you live in. Imagine John. Imagine John trying to describe heaven to us. One of my favorite experiences all my life was being at a conference and Mankai spoke. Mankai was the leader of a Aka Indian tribe down in Ecuador, and um, he was responsible with his tribe for killing five of our American missionaries, including Jim Elliott, whose name you may be familiar with. But I was interested that they brought him from the jungles of Ecuador to the United States of America. He'd never been in civilization ever before, and there he is in America for the first time. And they're interviewing him. They brought him in a helicopter from Ecuador, and they're saying, hey, uh, Mankai, what, what do you like about America, or what strikes you about America? And one of the things he said, and some of you have heard me say this, one of the things he said is, this place is amazing because you drive up to people's houses and they hand you food out the window. Could you imagine him going back, and I'm sure this happened, and when he went back down to Ecuador into the jungles with people that had never been out of the jungle trying to explain what he witnessed in Los Angeles, California? Jonathan Edwards is the greatest mind probably the West has ever produced and one tremendous theologian. He loved everything pretty much in the world, was so curious about things that he cataloged everything that he studied, including insects. His mind was so bright that some of those catalogs are still in libraries. He graduated from Yale. He preached his first sermon at 18. His first sermon was on the subject of heaven. At 18 years old, he stood up in a pulpit and he said, I'm fearful to speak about heaven because any words that I would use only serve would only serve to diminish the glory of heaven. That's what I'm trying to get across. That over the next few weeks, as we talk about heaven, I will not have adequate words to describe it. So I go to John, and you, what do you do with it? You say, well, you just teach what he says, and I know that. But I want to drive home this point. John is not having a vision of heaven. He's not having a dream of heaven, an imagination of heaven. John is not like others who've written about heaven, who have dreamed of it, or died and went there, or whatever you want to say. John saw it. He saw it. So this is not us pie in the sky conjecturing about what heaven would be like. And I want us to see this in two ways, two facets of heaven from this text. Two facets of heaven we'll cover in this text. And the first facet of heaven is this. It is a, heaven is a, is a radiant city. It's a radiant city. And the second is it's a covenant city, a covenant city. The first one might be a little more clear than the second one, just in my, my uh, headings, but we'll get to what a covenant city means because it's pretty special. Number one, it's a radiant city. Look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels. Now, we have regularly through Revelation seen seven angels. We've seen one of them in particular that has seven bowls, as John says, in the plagues. If you can imagine John, wonder what's next. And he sees something that he's never seen before and more staggering than any, any other vision. Uh, any other revelation, any other sight. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is, more, this is more shocking and more striking to John than even the destruction of Babylon, than the destruction of the world, to when everything is remade. He carried me into a spirit, to a high mountain, and showed me the holy city. And I want to stop right there. It's called the New Jerusalem. We talked about it last week. But it is the holy city because it is a radiant city, and it is a real city. It's a real city. He said it has the glory of God. That in and of itself is absolutely an amazing statement. 
It has the glory of God. We call heaven sometimes glory, and there's a good reason for that. Why? Because we see it has the glory of God. God is the builder. God is the builder. No wonder when we read about Abraham, he wanted to see that city whose maker or architect and builder was God. No wonder, no wonder Moses was willing to, to disregard the riches of Egypt in order that he might have the reproaches of Christ and he might have this reward of a city that belonged to God. No wonder the apostle Paul said, the sufferings of this life, and Paul suffered. He suffered. No, he said, no wonder that Paul would say the sufferings of this life cannot compare to the glory that is to come. No wonder the apostle Paul, who actually did go to heaven, was in heaven and saw heaven, came back to earth, could not speak about it and did not write about it. It's glorious. It has God's glory. And that's why we call it glory. Its builder is God. It has God's glory. What was John's response here? John's response, it's amazing to think about what John's response is. His response is one of all, one of all. And it should be ours this morning as he sees this, the glory of God. Now, John had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. John actually wrote this. We beheld the glory of God in Jesus Christ, John 1.14. But that glory was veiled. Now John sees the incredible glory of God in all of its fullness. And he recognizes this. God is doing something very special. He's transforming all things so that His glory can be known in absolute clarity. Um, I was in middle school. Uh, we, we had a little football team I was on. And it uh, wasn't all that good. In fact, we weren't really good at all. And uh, we were playing a team from Lake Butler, Florida. Anybody from Lake Butler, Florida? This was a massive team, and they were beating the snot out of us. And I don't remember what the score was, but it was a lot to nothing at halftime. We got there, and we got a little orange slices or whatever we got back then. I don't think we had, I don't think we had orange slices. I think they just said, suck it up, kid. And um, our coach said, hey, you know, we're, we're really getting beat out there and stuff like that. And he goes, we're going to concede the game. And all of us are like, all right. And the other assistant coach says, that means we're quitting. And I'll never forget that. Because I didn't know what conceded meant. I thought conceded meant, okay, we got a better plan here. You know, we're going to come back. Conceded meant we're going to go shake hands at halftime and quit. I've never let that coach live that. I have never, for, I'm an old man now, and I still don't forget. I still haven't forgiven that guy. We're going to quit? You know what Jesus is not going to do to this world? He's not going to concede it to Satan. We're not people who believe that Satan wins at all. He's not even winning right now. And every once in a while, we'll get around and we'll look at the world and go, oh my goodness, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But my Lord is winning. He is going to take what is rightfully His. He's going to transform it completely. And heaven is going to be on this earth. It's a real city. I'm just trying to get that across. That sometimes we have a mind that heaven is that place that we're going up to that's up in the clouds. And we're in this atmosphere where we just kind of float around in boredom. Get that out of your mind, that's not biblical. John saw the incredible city of God, the new Jerusalem, coming down to earth to a transformed world. And why is everything being transformed? Because we, in that moment, too, will be transformed in order that we might have the capacity to see God's glory in its fullness. We're going to be able to not only see God's glory in its fullness in that day, we'll be able to show God's glory in its fullness. I mean, when Adam and Eve were with God, they got to be with God and see His glory, and then sin marred all of that. God then would have man create tabernacles and temples in which His glory would dwell in the Holy of Holies, but nobody could walk in it without dying. 
Jesus came and dwelt among us and we had his glory and veiled flesh. And then the spirit of God lives in us. Praise God for that. And we have God's spirit in us and God's glory in us is being exhibited when we live for Christ, but we know we're not all we need to be, and we don't always glorify God like we should. In fact, we don't even have in our flesh all the capacity to do what we know we ought. But one day, we are going to have the capacity to show the glory of God to all creation, and the capacity to see His glory when we're in heaven. You're in Philippians chapter Three, I think in Bible study, you're coming to this place probably in the next week or two, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Yeah, this world is not being conceded to the devil. It belongs to the Lord and will be subjected to him. So will we. And the, the glory of God will be demonstrated throughout all the universe. And all the universe will refract and will reflect his glory forever. I'll bring this because I want to give a footnote before I move on. And that is, we're going to be transformed and God's glory will be completed in us. But right now, currently, 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 if you're a believer, if you're truly born again, you're being transformed into the image of Christ. See, Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for you, but he's also right now preparing you for that place. You and I are regularly being transformed into the image of Christ. I like what Armando says, a member of our church. He says, you know, God can't mold cold gold. I know what he means by that. You have to be, and I have to be molten down in order to be molded. And sometimes that is a painstaking process. So like Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, for we know that those who love God, God is working all things together for their good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those who form, He foreknew, He also predestined, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so we have this incredible Credible promise that God is doing a work in us to glorify us eventually, but He is also preparing us for that world right now by leading us from one level of glory to another. Right now, we have a current capacity for more glory to be seen and shown, seen by us and shown through us. I don't know what your Christian existence is like right now. If you're just kind of eking it through, I want you to know you weren't made for that. You were made to see more of His glory on a regular basis. You were saved to show more of His glory regularly to those around you. We say this all the time. We're a church who loves Jesus, and we want others to know Him. You know what you mean by that? We, we want to grow more in love with Christ, and the more in love with Christ we grow, the more of His glory we desire, and the more we desire people to come to know Him. Your evangelism will not probably be sparked because you're afraid people might die and miss heaven and go to hell. That is a, definitely a motivation of ours. It's definitely a motivation of ours. Certainly was one of Paul's. But one of our greatest motivations for evangelism and sharing our faith and being bold out there in the world is that we have fallen in love with Jesus Christ and we just want everybody to know Him. We don't want people to miss the glory that we have are regularly experiencing in Him. Are, are you? What's your capacity for, for His glory right now? Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. When I read a passage, I need to say something about it. There's a little commentary. You have the Spirit of God in you, capital S Spirit, capital Spirit, the Holy Spirit in you, 
And where the Spirit of God is controlling, there's freedom. When the Spirit of God is controlling you, there's freedom, there's liberty. And we all have this unveiled face beholding the glory of God. So we have this unveiled face beholding the glory of God. And we are being, listen, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What is Paul saying? He's saying that in the face of God right now we live. And because we live in the face of God and we are we're, look, separated from Him physically, we, we don't see Him like we will do one day. We don't have a glorified body. But right now we are being transformed into glory from one level or one degree to the next. This comes from the Spirit of the Lord. All of this within the context of where Moses got to see a little bit of the passing glory of God and it changed his countenance. That as we as believers pursue Christ, live for Christ, we experience more of His glory degree by degree and day by day. And when we experience His glory, we show it. We demonstrate it. It's it's seen in us. When we're not pursuing, we're not pursuing His glory. We pursue trivial, worldly, passing events and experiences, and they never satisfy anyone, including especially the believer. But as we pursue Christ for what He has pursued us for, we experience more of His glory, and we desire even in deeper ways. John Piper put it this way, we waste our lives this way. We waste our lives this way. We waste our lives when we do not pray and think and dream and plan and work toward magnifying God in all spheres of our life. God created us for this, to live our lives in a way that makes Him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that He really is. In the night sky of this world, God appears to most people, if at all, like a pinprick of light in heaven, of darkness. But He created us and called us to make Him look like what He really is, glorious. In other words, words, as we live our lives pursuing Christ on a daily basis, we not only experience more of the glory of God in our own lives, we make Him glorious to this world. And that's what heaven's going to be about. Like, here's what's so awesome about this radiant city. This radiant city is radiant because it's radiant with the glory of God. And when we get there, we're going to say, yep, this is what it's all about. This is what I was built for. This is why God created me. I was here. I'm here because of His grace. And I was created for this glory to be and bask in His glory forever. This is really it. I finally found it. I just kind of want to skip ahead some of the problems and processes of life that create so many issues. We're, we're, we're people always pursuing something that's going to fulfill us, something that we'll get excited about, that maybe make us joyful. We're always pursuing things. I mean, the world is constantly in pursuit of happiness and life and, and, and fun and pleasures. Let's skip, to, let's skip to the end and see how that what really fulfills us is basking in the glory of Christ. When we get there, we're going to go, this is it. This is everything I've been longing for. Then, 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 then would you just go right now in your mind to the reality that if you're going to enjoy life to its fullest, it's because you glorify God in heaven? Some of you learned in the Shorter Catechism, the very first teaching is this. We were created for His glory and to enjoy Him forever. It is in His glory that we enjoy Him. It is in His glory that we enjoy life. It is in God's glory and the freedom of living for Christ that you really enjoy everything that God has for you. So that's what heaven is. It's going to be a glory, glory city, radiant city. Secondly, I like this. It is a 
covenant city. Uh, it's a covenant city. Look at verse 12. It had a great high wall and 12 gates, and the gates had 12 angels. So stop there for just a minute. Uh, this is a city, a real city. It has a real wall around it, and it has angels guarding it. It has angels guarding it. Now, if you have a city and you build walls, you do that for one reason. You build walls around your city to keep bad people from coming in. Or if you are not a good city, if you are a dominated city by some sort of dictatorship or some sort of a communistic system like we saw in Germany, you have a wall to keep people in. These walls have gates, and these gates are open. And these walls are not to keep bad people out or to keep us in. We can come and go. These walls are a reminder of God's promise to keep us secure throughout all of eternity. We have no threats. And so at the, the side of the walls, we see the incredible security that we have. And you have angels guarding the gates, which is pretty awesome. Because how would you like to be a security guard with no threats? That's a pretty good job. You're going you're gonna to make it A+. Plus. You're, you're all, your reviews are going to be wonderful every single year. Yeah. You allowed no one in that shouldn't be, and you allowed no one out that shouldn't be. And you know why? Because no one can come into that city that would be a threat to that city. It is a reminder of the covenant that God has made to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, to make us absolutely secure. And in heaven forever, we will be secure. We see this in the walls. We see this in the walls. We see these in the names of the 12 patriarchs that represent the old covenant, covenant meaning promise of God. There's a distinction between a covenant and a contract. At weddings, we see people come into a couple, a man and a woman, come into a relationship together in covenant matrimony, marriage, that is not to be, not to be separated. Because here's a contract. Contract says, you keep up your end of the deal, and I keep up my end of the deal, um, then, then, we'll, then, then we'll be able to get along. Marriage is not that way. You don't make a contract in marriage and say, well, look, if you squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom all the time and make sure the seat's down, we'll be good. Marriage is a covenant between you, your spouse, and the living God that says, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. This covenant that God has made in the Old Testament was that I promise to make you a people, and I'm going to save you. And I'm going to show you that you cannot save yourself. And in the old covenant, you see that there's a sacrificial system built on the truth that you have a law to live up to, but you can never, so that you have to have some sort of sacrifice in your place, which leads to the new covenant, new in relation to the old covenant, where Jesus came and fulfilled the old covenant and in his blood with his disciples said, this is the new covenant. And next week, when we take the communion, we will celebrate the promise that Jesus has made that can never be broken. And throughout eternity, we'll remember, we're secure. We're safe. We will never fall out of heaven any more than Noah could have fell out of the ark. And why? Because he has a secure. Another footnote here. He said, what what about now? Could, Could that help us now? It can help us really, really well. Because you see, what God does, he does completely. And he does perfectly. And Hebrews 10 says, your salvation was accomplished perfectly and eternally. So when anyone asks this question, hey, is salvation forever? Or here's another way it's often asked. Once saved, always saved? Is that a truism? 
Is it true that what you're once saved, you're always saved? And the absolute truth is, yes. Jesus put it this way when he was speaking to his disciples. He said, you have eternal life. You'll never perish. No one will snatch you out of my hand. My Father has given all of them to me. He's greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. Here's the reality that you and I are saved and secure because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. We belong to Christ, we belong to the Father, and we can never be ever snatched out of His hand. And eternity tells that story. It also is a reminder of our security that came as a result of salvation through suffering. Look at verse 21. There are 12 gates and 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Now, I grew up hearing about the pearly gates, did y'all? But evidently, they're not pearly. They're each one a pearl, and they are massive, massive. They are not meant to be closed to keep us out, but to allow us to come in, and others from other nations also to bring in honor to Christ and the glory that they bring to that city. Here we are in a city that has security, and through suffering of Christ, constantly we're reminded it is, it is the security that was brought about by His cross. You, you know what a pearl is and how a pearl is formed. A pearl is formed because it brings comfort or re- relief from suffering for, for, for an oyster that has some sort of foreign object, maybe sand or something else that has come into the filter system. A pearl we count as very costly in price, uh, very, very, very high in, in value. But we do because it's beautiful. But think about where that pearl came from and why it came about. All throughout eternity, we'll be reminded that because of the sufferings of Christ, we have the security of that city. We have salvation that can never be undone. And therefore, again, be able to give glory to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Now, we don't, we don't share in the sufferings of our redemption. Christ suffered alone on the cross for our sin. And he suffered for our sin without any help from any man. But we do share in the sufferings of Christ in life. Paul put it this way, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So throughout all of eternity, we will be reminded that Christ suffered for us and that our sufferings were worthy of him. We do, we do not share in the redemptive sufferings of Christ. We certainly share now in this day in the righteous sufferings of Christ. And if you live for Christ, you will, you will suffer. But one day, one day, one day, we'll share in relief from the sufferings of Christ. And those pearls will remind us that we will never suffer again. No separation. Look in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, this would have spoken to John and his audience in a way that doesn't speak to us, maybe, but let's think about it for a moment. By the time John writes the Revelation, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Romans. Jewish people have nowhere to go to worship like they once did. May have been wondering, what's next? John sees the new Jerusalem, and he sees no temple in it. No temple, why? Because the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the temple. Now, why is this important? 
Well, the temple always represented the presence of God. The temple always represented the glory of the Lord. Now, no need for that temple, no need for that temple in the the place called heaven because Jesus is very present and therefore is the one we can walk right into and see. We see that this city is a very symmetrical city. It's a, it's a cube city. It's 1,500 miles high, wide, and long. It's, it's like that we see in the temple that was on the earth. On the earth, you had a temple that men and women actually went to, and it was a replication of that which would be in heaven. And in the temple on earth, you had a place called the Holy of Holies, which was a cube. It was a cube. It was a cube. Same length, width, height. And the priest went in there to offer up sacrifices in the Holy of Holies in order that we might have our sins, or the Old Testament saints would have their sins atoned for. In heaven, we no longer need a Holy of Holies because everything in the universe becomes the Holy of Holies. We are not separated by a veil or by any other uh, uh, item, including our sin, from the presence of God. In heaven, we will be able to be right in the very presence of God Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is absolutely amazing. Not only that, look at, look at verse 23. The city has no need for a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Don't you like that? The lamp is the Lamb. The lamp is the Lamb. I was reading in the Washington Post last week. Just an article kind of got my attention. It said why we should be gazing at more sunsets and sunrises. The article went on and said there's nothing like a sunset to stop you in your tracks, whether you're commuting, relaxing on vacation, or quickly glancing out the window. The vibrant reds, oranges, yellows stream across your, your view and grab your attention, making us think, wow, we become momentarily speechless. And then an article, uh, in the article, a professor was quoted by saying, it's in that moment, all, it's so awe-inspiring in that moment and so awe-inspiring that our problems diminish. And then it nerded out on how and why uh, sunsets and sun Rises are so beautiful as light hits different particles in the atmosphere and refracts and bends. And this is why we have this incredible experience. Listen, listen, I saw that and I thought, in heaven, there's not going to be any sunrises or sunsets. Because the Lamb is the lamp. There's no need for a sun, no need for a moon. And the, the sunsets and the sunrises will pale. They will look like preschool coloring books that you put on your refrigerator compared to the glory of, of, of what God's going to give us in heaven. It's not just that we're going to have this incredible sunset, sunrise, and sights that we could ever imagine. It's way beyond even that we could imagine. This is incredible. The entire city is made up of clear crystal reflecting and reflecting the glory of God, and the Lamb is the lamp. Just um, recently, our daughter was engaged to a young man that's a member of our church, and they decided they would get in, or he decided he would propose to her on the West Coast um, in Malibu. And it was such a beautiful setting. And he wanted us there. And we were quite a few of us there celebrating. You know, we knew it was coming. And we were videotaping. And the sun was setting just perfectly, just perfectly on, on the Pacific Ocean. It was just incredible, incredible to be there. That's nothing compared to what heaven's going to be like forever and ever and ever as we experience the Lamb who lights that city, reflects that light throughout the city and throughout the universe. We will be awestruck. And just like when we see an incredible sunset or sunrise and we feel in that moment the glory of God, we will then know the glory of God like never before. I'm going somewhere with this. So is John. 
I want you to understand this. I want you to let sunrises and sunsets and all the beauty of creation prompt you and point you to the creation that's coming, the new creation in Christ. Right now we have symbols and we have shadows and we have all of these wonderful, wonderful aspects of God's creation that point us to His goodness. But let them also point you and prompt you to the incredible moment when there's no more night. Look at verse 24, no more night. The light will walk, the nations will walk in the light of the Lord. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and the gates of this city will never be shut and there will be no night there. Isn't that awesome? Hey, there's a city with the gates never shut. We can come and go. No darkness, no darkness. 50 years ago, junior hires were asked the question, what are you most afraid of? 50 years ago, junior hires, what are you most afraid of? Here's what they said. Number one answer, the dark. Number two, mean dogs. I can report from John's side of heaven. Verse 20, chapter 22 tells us there's no mean dogs in heaven. And chapter 21 says there's no night in heaven, no darkness in heaven. Uh, the same question was asked us recently of junior hires. What are you most afraid of? Answers changed. Now, junior hires say, we're most afraid of, number one, mom and dad getting a divorce. Number two, a cataclysmic war. I can report from John's vision, not only will there not be darkness in heaven, there'll be no divorce in heaven. There'll be no separation in heaven. There'll be nothing to be afraid of in heaven. There'll be no wars in heaven. There's no electricity in John's day. Imagine John having to go back to his cell every night, not knowing what occupied his cell with him, with no light to be able to shine to find out what critter might be in the lurk. John sees this city. There's no night. I like it too because I'm not one that likes to go to bed a whole lot. Actually, I'm liking it a little bit more as I get older. But on that day, no night. You know why? We won't run out of energy. Heaven's not going to be a place where you're going to sit around. You're going to have a lot to do and a lot of energy to do it. You're not going to get sick, and you're not going to get run down. You're not going to get these little viruses coming to your body, and you're like, I'm fighting something off, and I don't feel quite right. You're going to feel right all the time, and you never have to go to bed. Well, man, I want to rest every once in a while. Well, listen, God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested, and he didn't rest because he was tired. Heaven's going to be an incredible place of energy, an incredible place of rest. No night. Verse 26, and no fights. No fights. They, look at this, the kings, we learn from verse 24 and verse 26, the kings will bring into heaven, that new Jerusalem, that city, glory and honor of the nations. That tells us there's going to be other nations. There's going to be other nations. What does that mean, pastor? We'll know when we get there. I could give you the 15 ways in which people think about this, and it would just not do us any good. Well, we do know that there will be other nations. There will be then other kings. We certainly know that according to chapter 22, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. We've also learned saints are going to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. Where's going to be rulers in heaven? What are they going to do? They're going to rule kingdoms. And what are these kingdoms going to do? They're going to expand the glory of God throughout the universe. So if you're worried that you get to heaven, you're going to not have much to do, you're wrong. If you're an artist here, you'll be a brilliant artist like never before there. If you're a builder here, you'll have responsibility there like you have never imagined. If you have been to culinary school, God bless you. I want to meet you. You're going to create the most 
wonderful menu that's ever been concocted on the face of the earth and beyond that in the universe. We are seeing here that the glory of God, here's what we see here. The glory of God is being known in greater capacity. When Adam and Eve were created, they weren't created just to sit in the garden. They were supposed to take dominion of the earth and batter it. Well, in heaven, that's what we'll do with the universe. Well, you say it's perfect. Yeah, I don't understand it either. It's perfect, and yet we get to be a part of it and creating and expanding the glory of God. The capacity that we have for the glory of God will expand, and when it does expand, we'll bring honor to Him. That's love. So what happens is the more of the glory of God we experience, like, man, I've never had anything like this, and I've never seen anything like this, and I've never experienced anything like this. Oh, my God, you're so good. You're so good. You're going to glorify Him, honor Him, and it's going to cause you to fall in love deeper with Him so that you then want to go and glorify Him more. It's just going to be this constant cycle of getting better and better and better. When I was a kid, my mom never, ever sat down. I don't think I ever saw her sit down and watch the TV, if I remember. She was always moving, always going, still that way. And she would have, sometimes the price is right. That's the only show she would sometimes have on, I remember, as a kid. And there's this guy named Bob Barker, and he would like call people down. They'd win a prize, and here, I would stop as a kid, and I was like, what'd they win? A washer and dryer. And I'm like, Whatever. But then he would say something along these lines. I don't know how he said it, but it was kind of like this. It was like this. It was like, and that's not all. The washer and dryer could be used to wash your brand new wardrobe that's made up of Caribbean-style clothes that you're going to take on your new vacation, which is a Caribbean cruise. And they're jumping up and down, and the ladies are kissing him and stuff like that. He says, and that's not all. When you get back from your cruise, you can drive home in your brand new car. It just gets better and better. Are y'all following this? Like some of you are like, what's heaven going to be like? Better. And then better. And then you're like, oh my goodness. And then it's better. And it's because of the glory of God that's experienced through bodies that are able to have the capacity to be a part of His glory, reflect His glory, and fall more deeply in love with Him, and constantly bring Him honor. Y'all, this is, what is heaven? I want to stop here. We're going to spend more time on heaven, but let's just think for a moment. If, let's just use our minds for a moment. Check in here. If heaven is, if heaven is the incredible radiance of Christ and the security of Christ that's been won through his suffering, and when we get there, we look around and say, yeah, wow, this is what I was created for. This, this is what I was made for. This is what God created me for, is to bask in His glory and to fall more deeply in love with Him and to reflect Him all the time. If that's what's going to ultimately bring our fulfillment. What are we doing? What am I doing? Wasting my time with such trivial pursuits on earth, thinking that I can make them ultimate when they should never be. If that's what I was really made for, if that's what you were really made for, then why are, we, what, what, why are you playing around with sin? Well, why are you allowing sin to dominate your life, to dominate your thoughts, to, to think somehow 
that sin's going to actually pay off. It'll pay, but boy, it pays in spades more than you could have ever imagined. It's fun for a while, but the fun is fleeting and it always fades. There's these things that aren't bad we're pursuing. But why do we think those things that we're pursuing that aren't bad, that are good things, or even gifts of God, should become ultimate in our life so that we start pursuing them? You know what I mean? Let me just bring it down to earth a little bit. Because I was at the gas station, and I ran into a church member I hadn't seen in a while. Hey, man, I missed you. Yeah, we got a lake house. And you probably won't see us at church a whole lot more because we, we spend a lot of time at the lake. I like a lake house. I was blessed to grow up with a lake house in our family. But I'm going to tell you something. The lake house is a sorry replacement for Christ. I, I know. I, I know some of you look, you, you, your thing about Sundays is, uh, we're going to get our church and then we're going to go do what we want to do and, and, and what we are looking forward to doing But all those things that sometimes we make that are good gifts of God, that ought to be prompts for us to glorify Him and give Him praise, can become ultimate, which means are idols in our lives. And when they become idols in our lives, they are not fulfilling. In fact, they are in the way of what we were actually made for. What are you pursuing in your life? What's your daily pursuit? What's the pursuit? What's the reason you go to work? Well, what's the reason that you go to school? Oh, yeah, it's to earn. I've got to make a profit. I've got to feed my family. I want to, I want to expand. I want to get better. I want to learn. I want to grow. Those are all wonderful goals. They're not ultimate goals. Paul says, I am pursuing Christ. I'm pursuing Christ, pursuing Christ. He's the one who pursued me. Now I'm pursuing him for what he pursued me for. What did Christ pursue you for? To leave you in the same old mass that you were in? No way. No way. He pursued you to win you to himself and to make you into his image and to help you to win him. So Paul says, I just pursued Christ now. He pursued me and I pursue him. It's, it's what he calls the upward call. The upward call. I'll close here. And I, I was with a buddy of mine and some of you all heard this story on a Wednesday night. But he's a, he's a pilot with a, with a commercial airline and he's a soul winning I mean, it's a soul-winning machine. Like, he just, went, just witnesses everywhere he goes. I love him. So I made time to go spend some time with him and talk to him. He said, you know, just a little while ago, I got in trouble for, for sharing Christ. I, I get in trouble pretty regularly. They keep telling me that if I keep doing this, I'm going to lose my, my job. But he said, I'm going to keep doing it because my call is not to be a pilot. In fact, he said, I was flying the other day with a, a guy, and we were in the cockpit, and uh, he said, uh, he said, man, tell me, your, tell me about yourself. And he said, I, I told him all about how I got to where I was. He said, I, I should never be a pilot. You know, didn't make it, hardly, hardly made it through high school. Um, told the story about kind of where, where his life was going off the rails. He said, I shouldn't be here. He said, he said, I shouldn't be here. And the only reason I got here, he said, is because of the upward call of Christ. And the other pilot said, what do you mean by that? He said, oh, oh the upward call of Christ? is I'm here in this seat to tell you about Jesus so that you can miss hell and make heaven. See, you might think I'm here because I'm a pilot and I'm making money. No, that's not why I'm here. I've had an upper call, and my upper call is to fly this plane so that I might tell other pilots about Christ. That's, that's, that's amazing. And when you have that kind of mentality, 
And I have that kind of mentality. It can make life and work and the drudgeries purposeful. I mean, if in heaven, when we get there and we say, this is it. This is what I was made for. I was made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why wouldn't we want to go ahead and glorify God and enjoy Him here? That's what we were made for. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us this opportunity to look at heaven and to think about it for just a few minutes this morning. And really, Lord, thank you for eternity. Because we'll never be able to exhaust your glory. We'll only be going deeper, deeper, deeper into the, the vast fathoms of your glory throughout all of eternity. Help those in this room who are Christians who have gotten off track and begin pursuing so many um, life efforts and, and uh, even goals that, Lord, really got them, got them away from the main things and, and the most important and, and following you. God, I pray they'll turn today, get right with you. And, and Lord, realize that you made them for so much more. You made them for so much more. I pray for the God those who are lost today without Christ. I pray today that they would recognize the goodness of God that it would lead to repentance. They would see this beauty of heaven. And Lord, would all of their heart be repentant because God, they are not going there. They're not going there. And Lord, by your grace, would you open their eyes to show them they can, they can be saved by your gift of salvation. They can be saved through Christ. And God, may they be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.